Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of Directorial Debuts, our spinoff of Plot Devices. If you like this show, uh, maybe check out some of our own episodes on Plot Devices. Whether you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all of our episodes are on there. You can check out all our early stuff on that. My name is Brendan King. I'm one of your hosts for today, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman, who is uh, joining me with a song in his head and his heart. Noah, how are you? And please sing the song so we can get completely demonetized. I'm doing well. I'm here to talk the DD pod with on plot devices. Ah, I almost had that, but no, that hello, was good. everybody. Thank you so much. Uh, you're right. I need to just ride the wave. I can't turn around and be like, oh, it could have been better. No, that was perfect. This tune in my head, couldn't tell you where it's from, couldn't tell you when it's going to leave me, but it's do, 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 um, and I'm very excited to be joining you here today for our DD exclusive episode number three. Um, once we get into the title of today's episode, uh, I think we can both be excited because this is a movie I definitely grew up with and I have some thoughts on and returning to it uh, now as a grown adult. Um, let's see what kind of discussions we can get into. Let's get into it. This is actually one that I'm really excited about. I mean, if, if you guys know me from the podcast at all, and again, check out Plot Devices, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed, check us out there. If you've heard me at all on that show or any capacity, you know that I'm a massive animation nerd, and this episode is going to be near and dear to my heart. We are talking about Brad Bird's 1999 directorial debut, The Iron Giant. Ready the attack? So this movie, uh, again, is based on The Iron Man by Ted Hughes. It's a 1968 children's novel. Uh, we'll get into the development history on this uh, in a little bit because I actually find it fascinating. But basically, real simple premise. Uh, we find ourselves in a town called Rockwell in Maine in the 1950s, height of the Cold War, height of the Red Scare, as idyllic Americana as you can get. And that is Brad Bird's, I think, intention in this. We follow a young boy named Hogarth Hughes, played by Eli Marienthal. Uh, he's kind of a, he's kind of like a generic kid. Uh, we've seen this character a lot of times. He's not necessarily a nerd or outcast, but he kind of is. He's not necessarily a genius, but he kind of is. He fits in a lot of different wheelhouses, but he doesn't have a ton of friends. Uh, primarily, he hangs around with his mother, uh, Annie, voiced by Jennifer Aniston, actually. Uh, she works as a waitress. Uh, she's a single mom. She's trying to support her son. They run into a lot of characters in the town. And again, there's not really anything going on besides just her trying to keep Hogarth in line and Hogarth trying to figure out who he is as a kid until somehow... Uh, a giant robot appears in the middle of this town. Uh, no one really sees him except for the people whose trash and metal objects he destroys. Uh, the robot seems to be eating metal, but no one believes him except for a FBI agent voiced by Christopher McDonald, Kent Mansley, who's uh, got a whole bunch of baggage on his own. He comes into town to investigate, trying to prove his worth in, you know, again, the Red Scare era FBI. Hogarth finds the robot who he finds is not actually this great sci-fi menace that he has been led to believe through comic books and TVs. And the movie is essentially about this friendship between the two. It's very E.T.-esque of him trying to hide the robot, the town slowly finding out, the secret agent getting on their case, and will, you know, not E.T. phone home, but will the robot, who is also voiced by Vin Diesel, I should mention, uh, be able to get back to home alive, whatever that is. So let's hop into this. This is actually really interesting. It's one of the pieces of 90s animation that I think get swept under the radar unless you're in like really distinct animation circles or you're just a Brad Bird completionist as I am. Noah, let's hop into this first. And I think in our last two episodes, we've had a bit of, you know, back and forth about this, but I think we'll be on a similar page. 
I assume you've had experience with Brad Bird's material before. I mean, we're talking Incredibles, Mission Impossible, Tomorrowland. Uh, what was your experience going into Iron Giants, both with, with Bird's filmography and this movie's identity? I grew up with the Iron Giant on my screen. I believe we owned it on VHS and it was one of the movies that me and my older sister would watch time and time again. Um, I have very, very fond memories of like just pieces of the movie being so young that it kind of just stuck with you. Uh, these robots eyes as, um, he has these soft moments, um, with Hogarth or when you start to feel him lose himself to his weaponry or to his uh, potential to become a weapon and then understanding kind of the, the, the terror of uh, annihilation at the end of the movie. So I think that this movie kind of has both um, very, very gentle aspects when it comes to the relationships of Hogarth and the giant, as well as like giving a sense of dread and the sense of, um, you know, your final moments surrounded by your community uh, in that final act of this movie, which I didn't, I think, take so, I didn't expect it to have as much impact growing up because I just was just watching it and maybe had no uh, contextual information about the movie. But now understanding and reflecting on its place in history, especially with, um, like you say, the Cold War and the Red Scare, uh, this was at a time where that was a real threat that people were facing of seeking fallout from a nuclear war. And I was like, damn, that's deep in this animation movie. Like that is some heavy stuff. Um, And then understanding Brad Bird as a director, like you said, uh, The Incredibles is definitely another movie that I had growing up. So it seems to me like this is a director that people will realize they grew up having watched their work on screen without even realizing it. So it's not until you reflect on the director's filmography that you'll realize just how present they were. It's funny, Iron Giant was always one of those movies that I remembered watching, but I could not pinpoint actually watching it. Like, I never owned it on VHS or DVD. I don't remember watching it at a friend's house. It just always was with me in some capacity. The first time I actually remember watching it was, like, like late elementary school, like fifth, sixth grade, something around there. Uh, and I remember being absolutely enthralled by it. I thought it was unlike, again, I was a little bit of a naive kid. I hadn't watched a lot, but, like, I understood it for what it was, and I appreciated this kind of, subtle maturity that I'm sure we'll examine about the movie that it was a kid's movie. It was very much, you know, oh, look at Hogarth. He's weird and eclectic and he's making friends and there's that childhood naivete. But at the same time, it's also like a movie about just like personal problems and how those can blow up to be like really big issues and, you know, just loving and respecting other people's differences and quirky boundaries. And I think Bird's material, minus maybe Ambition Impossible, has always had that material behind it. Like we talk about the Incredibles movies. That's kind of what that is. Tomorrowland is very much the idea of, you know, let the misfits run the asylum kind of thing. I think in the best way. And, you know, I think this is the most heartfelt of all of his movies. I think it's the most streamlined emotionally of all of his movies. And it's a movie that I, like you, I look back on fondly. I just can't quite pinpoint those memories. I think this film is also a close perspective on growing up as an only child or what I can only guess is the experience because um, here you have Hogarth who is growing up in the nineties, who doesn't, who yes, has like a working TV, but where he seeks enjoyment is in the outdoors. Um, He comes from a a generation that I I don't know how many people have this common. uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Like experience of like, everybody had a BB gun when they were like 10 years old. So, um, you know, we're, Um, having kids adventure outdoors. And that's where he ultimately meets this giant who wants to uh, go stomping around the forest with him, explore lakes. And uh, I think that's where a lot of the heart comes from is from Hogarth. And to me, I didn't 
ever feel like he was like the annoying little kid uh, watching this. Like I, I was always rooting for him because uh, he was still a good, a good child to his mother. Um, his mother, Annie is a single mother and she works late nights at a diner. Um, and Hogarth has the familiar experience of staying up late by himself and binging out on some snack foods and watching scary movies and growing up loving scary movies. It was easily, it was easy to identify with a little boy like him um, just looking for a friend and, um, I, I think I lost myself in the question. Oh my gosh. I, I, I actually think that's like a really good point because there's that idea of, we, we've talked about like, you know, kid characters and kid actors before. And like, I'm not super familiar with Ellie Marathon as a, as a performer, mostly just from this, but I wouldn't go so far as to call him a brat, but I would not call him the perfect child by any stretch. Like he, he's giving his mom a hard time. Like this is very much that idea of, you know, I know the world, I know my own place in it, and that is constantly being, you know, restructured by the things around him, which is a great kid narrative to focus on. And I think Bird knows that and leans into that with the relationship with the Giants. But I think there's more nuance to Hogarth as a character than, you know, the simplicity of his name with Hunnan. And we talk about, like, the the sort of dark themes that this movie features, and that is also... Um, it becomes present as soon as the adults enter the picture. And by yeah. adults, I really just mean one. And that is um, the FBI agent named Kent Mansley, uh, voiced by Christopher McDonald, uh, voices imperfectly to be like this menacing adult who is uh, who comes off as approachable and friendly to the parent. But the child can spot from a mile away that this dude has um, he has bad intentions. And their first encounter is because um, Hogarth, not Hogarth. Um, the FBI agent Kent gets a tip that there's um, what's the anomaly that sparks his interest in the robot. It's the power plant, right? The power plant. So when he shows up to Annie Hughes, house, uh, she very comfortably says, okay, FBI, like government worker. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you can use my cell phone. I'm just enjoying dinner here with my son. And um, this Kent character has such intense patriotism to him that he feels so committed to his country that he has to unravel Hogarth's life from this outsider's perspective, not understanding that this is a fond relationship um, between a who Hogarth describes as like a little boy in the form of this huge giant. Like he's still fairly um, naive and it's not, it doesn't turn until like the second half of the movie that the giant explores how he can become a weapon. And that is in a defensive state. Um, but who brings that out of him? It's primarily the, this Kent character who, by the way, like breaks into Hogarth's house and like chloroforms the kid. And I was like, whoa, okay, there, there's chloroforming a kid in this family movie. I know. And then, and then, then they stay up looking at like Hogarth, like he is the hero. Of course, we're rooting for him and he outsmarts this Kent character. But oh my gosh, I was like, damn, <laughs> back in this movie, like they didn't care. <laughs> we're chloroforming kids. Like, here's the kid. Here's the kid. Here's the thing is that if you are a kid watching that, that's scary, but you don't quite understand the implications of it. But Bird really subtly takes that around in the very next scene is that outsmarting scene which i think if you're a kid you're like yeah that could be me like that's something i would come up with and i think that balancing act is so crucial to what the movie is going for when we talk about adult characters okay we've covered kent and his malicious nature and sure he's this patriotic figure but we see how that turns out in the very final act of the movie where he completely 180s on his country um but i do want to talk about this other gentleman that enters hogarth's life in 
Dean McCoppin and how you think he fits into this story being somebody we're introduced to at the very start of the movie in the diner, kind of assisting Hogarth in keeping this pet pet under the radar. Um, did I quote the wrong person? Oh, no. My apologies. Uh, Dean McCoppin, voiced by Harry Connick Jr., and how he assists Hogarth in the intro of the movie when Hogarth is trying to keep this pet squirrel away from his mother's finding out. Um, but then he comes back into Hogarth's life as kind of like this mentor figure, or at least, um, you know, what would you call Dean's relationship to Hogarth and the giant? Everyone in Hogarth's life either doesn't understand him or wants him, you know, to stay up in the house or like just away and being. And Dean is kind of the opposite. Like Dean's, you know, not a hippie necessarily. That isn't necessarily a thing at that time, but he embodies the idea of that, of just being like, yeah, come on and hang in my dangerous junkyard. This is the fifties. I don't really, as long as you don't touch anything. Yeah. Hey kid, come, come on in. Let's drink some espresso together. Um, the, of to course be, there are people. To be fair, he says no to the espresso. Hogarth just takes it anyway. <laughs> right. Um, and I think Dean just represents this adult trusted figure that Hogarth can confide in because he doesn't have pressure from Dean being um, judgmental about who Hogarth is changing out, hanging out with and the dangers of hanging out with a giant the size of, you know, um, the tallest trees in this forest. Um, I think he would trust his mother and Annie, but because of how occupied she is by work and because of how much she has to be that guardian figure, Dean is his next best ally just in terms of how to handle this uh, colossal giant um, and working with like, can I keep him or, you know, what is my responsibility to this uh, machine? I call him a machine. He's not, he's more than a machine. As we mentioned in the movie, he has a soul uh, and that comes to be very important. I actually want to real quickly, because I do want to dive in like the animation, and everything else later on, but I want to go back to Kent Mansley as a character and what he represents for this. And like, I won't, this isn't going to turn into a whole history lesson. I'm sure a lot of you know the context around like the fifties, but we had the red scare. We had a pretty much peak idea of xenophobia and racism and isolation in America. We can handle this and just do what we want and, you know, screw it. If you get in our way, we never understand whether he served or not, let alone, you know, in the FBI for however he's been doing. But I like the idea of Mansley being the idea of, you know, toxic Americanism at its worst. And the idea that, you know, he is the best of villains because he is he's so charismatic, but he also believes that he's right. He believes that this is a threat from everything. And Hogarth is at one point in the movie, I think dangerously close to becoming like Mansley, like we see him early on in the movie when he doesn't understand the giants and he's just as enthralled by that sense of, you know, media and comic books and, you know, the news and that whole world around him as Mansley is. The difference is Mansley is part of that world and has been through however much he's been through, but he believes that that is, you know, that's worth more experience than Hogarth's kindness. And I like the idea of knowledge versus emotion that those two kind of play off each other. It's a little nuance between the characters, but it ties back into that idea of Mansley is a dick. I wanted to talk about uh, specifically that scene where we haven't really talked about the giant as a character, but when we talk about uh, the scene where he repairs himself magnetically, uh, that's, I think, one of the few early moments where I think the music kicks in and really invites you into uh, more than just what you see, because all I could imagine when I was listening to the music while uh, he's repairing himself is like, I'm, I feel like I'm in a toy shop right now. And it's, it's the little, it's the little like jingles that you hear maybe in like the Harry Potter magic shops, or um, I'm trying to think of related scenes because it, it had me just feel like young and just joyful at watching this. And uh, 
I think that's why the ending hits so hard because it, um, it kind of, <laughs> it drags you to a point where you, you don't think that that's possible. And, uh, when we discuss the ending, you know, we can talk about why that's turned on its head. Brandon, how did you feel the pacing of this movie really affected its tone? Because we do take a, a major turn once the army gets involved. For the first two acts, it's, you know, oh, it's Hogarth and the giant bonding. Oh, will the FBI agent catch them? You know, it's that kind of thing. And then the third act comes around and suddenly it's all out war in this little main town with, you know, spoilers for getting into it, a really cool design for the giant. And we'll get into it when we talk about the animation. And I found the pacing of it to be really interesting in that regard, in that I think a lot of animated movies, let alone now, uh, even just at that time, but I think they wouldn't try something like this. I think it's very ballsy to kind of have that big of a third act askew the stakes even higher. So I didn't mind it. And the hour and a half runtime just flies by. It knows what to do with, I think, most scenes, except for like maybe let a couple linger. But I thought it just flew by. When we get to that final act, um, where it reminded me that this does take place like in a city because for all for all the time before then, it kind of just feels like you're you're living in this little remote area of um of the city where you have forests surrounding Hogarth's house. He doesn't really have any neighbors. So that's why his, he finds um, fulfillment and joy just being in the outdoors. But in the final act, the giant is approaching the city um, as well as like um, being the city's being um, filled up with all of these tanks. These jets are starting to fly off and it's hilarious really just to see how fast that escalates. Like there's no DEF CON (laughs) five, four, three, two, no, like we're just there. It's, it's all guns out um, to destroy this threat quote unquote um and i and i think that goes back to that idea of xenophobia in the u.s at the time but like any threat was the biggest threat let's talk about the giant because up until yes. then we have one moment where we have the giant who is this uh he's kind of a hulking figure but his limbs are i mean i, I wouldn't call him hulking he has a big chest but uh for the most part he's just tall like he's just huge and um it's so funny because when he's just standing there at night when he has conversations with hogarth because he does talk vin diesel does lend his voice to more than just a single word or just grunts um and it, what what makes me laugh is it's the whole idea of at night, you know, you can hear the birds whispering and like the, the wind moving and the giant just stands still. And as soon as he takes a step, that's when like the ground is like, an, it's just quakes underneath. And I think the, the contrast of those two uh, are really funny for this big figure who doesn't realize how, how his space in the world, really how he fits into it. Um, and then when they come upon a deer in the forest, who's been shot dead, and funny enough, there's like a rifle right next to the deer as if these hunters like chucked their weapons and then took off. Well, um, well no, because remember, they scares off the hunters. Right. Thank you for that. So the hunters are scared off and Hogarth instructs him like he really teaches the giant about death and says, you know, like that that thing is dead and it's it's gone. It won't come back. And um, the gun is what killed him. And I think that that's he kind of taught the giant to recognize the gun as a threat. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I think so. And it actually, there's actually a deleted scene. I don't know if you saw this, but there's a deleted scene where like, there's like a programming that's uh, somehow instilled in the giant. And he sees a vision of like all of his kind, like marching through like the ruins of America. And when you watch that scene, it kind of brought to mind of just like, oh, like, yes, there's the final battle scene where we see, you know, mecha giant kind of thing. But it also brings to mind the deer scene of that idea of, you know, that kind of weapon system and that kind of power 
can be really corrupting even to the greatest or kindest of souls. And I like how Bird, I know we're talking about the actual scene, not the deleted scene, but it just brought more context to mind of the idea of life being precious, even to those who don't quite understand it. I like the way you put that, Brandon. That transformation between nice robot with these uh, almost yellow, whitish eyes, it's like the egg color eyes, and they go blood red, and he has the potential to, like a turtle, <laughs> duck his head into his uh, the shell of his chest, and these he immediately turns into like the tripods of war of the world you have like three tentacles shooting lasers coming out of his spine um the coolest weapons that you can think of like the animation team really dumped out their ideas onto what this robot can become if it was a weapon and i think that that's one of like as a kid watching that you're like damn this is so cool you know uh robots from outer space and they're marching over taking over the world um but he all of that is just to um, prevent the army from causing any real damage, not only to the giant, but to the community that surrounds them. Because in this final act, yeah, it seems like ev- all the key- all the city's members are gathering here um, to witness this this war that's going on between the giant and um, however many troops the army's dispatched here in the city. Uh, Brandon, I, I, you seemed excited about the transformation of the robot. Well, yes about that, because I actually think it's really cool. But I want to bring up more like the idea of animation in this movie in general, because at this time, and I won't, again, I don't want to like super history nerd, but like at the time, Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers botched the marketing for this movie, as I found out. Apparently, like that's why it didn't make a lot of money, because they just didn't really have faith in it. But one of the reasons they didn't was a movie called Quest for Camelot that Chris Columbus produced, which was part of their animation wing at the time. And so you can kind of tell that there's certain points where they might be skipping on the animation and bird is just using whatever he can as a disposal, whether it's, you know, the simplicity of the backgrounds or whether it's, you know, kind of the, the way the town is set up. There's only like certain corners that you see in certain parts of it or bigger than that is going back to the giant, the actual design of the giant, which you could argue is lazy and maybe just more derivative of 1950s design. I love it. I think it's maybe one of the most distinctive robot designs in fiction, because I think you just, like like you said, the big, like, beady white eyes, like, you see those, and that's the Iron Giant. There's a reason it's been, like, Space Jam and Ready Player One. It's been in all these different things because it's just so iconic. And I think it goes to a credit to Bird and his animation department for using what they had and what resources they were limited to to make something that feels classic and enriching. And I think when we go to the transformation scene, I don't love how he ducks his head in. I think that's a little bit goofy. But, like, everything else about it is just cool, and it brings the action up to a fever pitch, and, like, you see when he like shoots towards the battleship and he misses, you're like, oh, he could have killed a lot of people. Yes, this is like an entire mushroom cloud explosion that comes out of him firing what looks like not even his best weapon. And I and I just it makes me wonder from that deleted scene, you know, why was it removed? Was it because it placed too much like ill intent for the viewer to believe uh, that the I, giant? I like to think of it as Bird didn't think he needed it. I think at the end of the day, he recognized because he's on he's gone on record and talked about like I wanted to make a movie that was more streamlined and character driven and like was an exploration of these archetypes than like a big action spectacle movie, which we might mention in a moment because there's a part of that. I think the idea of what Bird does with that vision of it, I think, is really I think is really spectacular for the limitation that it has. And now 
of course, I was one years old when this movie came out, but I, I would be curious <laughs> on to how successful like widestream animation films were at the time, because I'm thinking about Bird and how um, any director, really, when I think about animated features, um, what I what I have in my mind is them uh, providing vocal direction or uh, potentially, you know, he is the co-writer for uh, the screenplay. So, of course, having some influence over what the scene direction would be. Uh, but I really want to understand brandon do you have any other insights from bird regarding this film and like how he how he treated it or how he uh, was able to um add his his creative touch as a director the thing is like if, if you look at bird's career and again i i say this again i don't want to be a history nerd because we only have so much time be the history life. nerd be the history nerd but for those of you in the know bird was like one of the main original people who came to pixar you know with john lasseter and andrew Staten and that whole crew but before that he had mainly cut his work on like The Simpsons. He's the guy behind Do the Bartman, if you remember that from the 90s. Uh, he wrote Batteries Not Included. He worked on a lot of like small Disney stuff, but most importantly, he worked alongside Steven Spielberg on a lot of things. He worked on him with like original like proof for concepts for Pixar. He worked on a show called uh, Amazing Adventures, which just got a reboot on Apple TV that I haven't watched. But needless to say, Bird took a lot of inspiration from TV serials and from the idea of not necessarily Americana, but like archetypes and that idea of universality to his features. And I think that is maybe the most evident of all of his films in this one, which I think is kind of fascinating when you consider like The Incredibles is pretty universal when you think about it. Uh, Ghost Protocol might be one of the most relatable Mission Impossible movies and like Tomorrowland is Tomorrowland. But like this movie on its whole, there's nothing super specific about it. And yet all the things specific that it takes from it, I think are because of what Bird cut his teeth on with, you know, you know, uh, the idea of like found families and general human emotion and, you know, what happens with the idea with the identity of the other. Those kind of things, I think, all tie back into this. The other quick thing that I just want to bring across is that I mentioned the idea of spectacle. Uh, this was supposed to be a musical. What? What? Yeah. I, uh, you're, this is an April Fool's joke, Brandon. No, it's I thought it was, too, because when I was watching this, I saw a certain name in the credits, Pete Townsend. And I was like. Do you mean the Who guitarist, Pete Townsend? And of course, it was the Who guitarist, Pete Townsend, because, and I will keep this short, he was supposed to buy the rights to the book that this was based on and make a musical out of it. Eventually, Warner Brothers got a hold of it and was like, hey, do you want to make a movie out of this? And he was like, sure, why not? And they got Bird to do it because reasons why I'm still not entirely clear on. But needless to say, this was supposed to be a musical. And the Brad Bird was like, I don't want to do a musical. And they were like, okay, do what you want. I'm not upset at knowing that now. Like I, I both love and like, oh, like it could have been a musical. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm cringing or if I'm kind of like, the musical nerd in me is kind of living for this new fact. I don't get it. I don't want a musical of this. And yet it is one of the things that if it existed, I would be like, show me it immediately. <laughs> Here, take my money, take it twice. Uh, Let Vin Diesel sing, darn it. Brandon, Let's talk the ending. Let's do it. Okay. So when the, when the army ultimately realizes that uh, they're not taking out this threat by themselves with tanks on the ground or jets in the air, um, it's really at a point where the giant has already defended himself and has not caused direct harm to like any innocent civilian. Um, the most part, yeah, he's defending himself. So the decision from the army comes that uh, from, um, I'm not sure if it's the general's call. I can't remember right now, or if it's coming from like HQ, but they're going to nuke the town. They are going to drop a, 
um, a bomb that would destroy life, not allowing, not even allowing time for any of the civilians or human life to get to a fallout shelter. And even then there's comments and there's um, sentences that are spoken that are like, it wouldn't even matter because there's nothing. We pretty much, we're not going to survive this if that, if that missile touches us and it's already been fired. So that's the point. It's like in the last 15 or so minutes, it, it, this is really like the final moment of the movie. And we see a uh, Dean approach Annie and um, they're both comforting each other. Uh, we have a Hogarth who is surprisingly like a uh, calm throughout the situation and potential uh, like demise of his family and his own self. Um, and he has this slow touching moment with the giant when the giant instructs to him the same words that um, Hogarth first spoke when they were walking through the woods. And that's just, you stay, I'll go and do not follow me. And unfortunately for Hogarth, um, he is unable to fly. So that's not even within the realm of possibility. Uh, but what the giant does is he takes to the skies and he intercepts the missile with his own body. And we see this huge explosion that can only mean that the giant has sacrificed himself. Brandon, how did this ending impact you? Uh, do you remember your initial like emotional reaction? And uh, how did it feel now? It's one of the few things I remember from watching it as a little kid, which is the scene of the giant launching into the sky. Um, and then, of course, what might be one of the greatest line deliveries in animation history. And yes, I'm talking about Vin Diesel with Superman, like with one word. One word, he encapsulates all that, all that the boy helped him believe. And it's like that you can be good. You can choose how, like how you how and who you are and in that moment the giant wants to be superman and save the day and oh my gosh that'll get anybody emotional i was like oh it's, it's getting me emotional though. i know <laughs> I was, why did we choose this um <laughs> but fret not brandon can you tell us what happens in the epilogue in the uh in the in those last couple of beautiful scenes <laughs> giant saves the world they build a statue of him everyone's like wow look at the lessons he taught us that's great and then he's he's alive in the Arctic. <laughs> and look at him. He's alive in Antarctica. He lives. Um, in a very sweet gesture, um, somebody hands, uh, because now the robot is completely like just shattered, disassembled. Dis this is a nuclear explosion that happened. And uh, somebody comes up and gives Hogarth like a screw, you know, some small piece of the giant, just so he can remember him and he can have this sort of memento uh, to carry with as he moves on. And, uh, but it's not too long that uh, Hogarth is still a boy that we see the same kind of scene replicated where that small piece starts to react to a signal that it's receiving. Um, and yes, of course, uh, we are shown that this piece is slowly finding its way back to its home, which is the body of the giant. So we can only assume as viewers that the giant is still alive and he reassembles himself one day and him and Hogarth live the best friendship in all time. And he ends up be, being the uncle to Hogarth's children and they go on fun play dates. Um, this movie's beautiful. I love, the, I love the idea of like, a, not even a sequel, but like an epilogue short film years later of like Hogarth telling his kids this and like, we don't believe you. And then all of a sudden, like it's been 20 years and the giant finally reassembles. He's like, <laughs> I knew you'd come back. <laughs> It's like, it's just, it's been a while. We, that was only one screw that came back to this, yeah. this huge figure. Brandon, let's get, jump into ratings. Yeah, for me, this is, 
I want to go higher with this, but again, there's only so much I can talk about with it. This is a nine out of 10. Uh, it's a classic for a reason. It's gained, I think, a rightful following over the last 20 something years. It was 1999. So yeah, 20 something years. Um, this movie's beautiful. It's streamlined beyond belief. There's, I don't think really any fat on this movie. Um, the characters are well-designed and well-likable, at least enough for what they need to be. They are based in archetypes that are in Bird and screenwriter Tim McCanley's hands masterfully. And I think the way that they are able to use the very limited devices to their order to make this, again, some might call it derivative. I would call it classic in all of the right ways with a just great heart and soul in the midst of it, a great commentary on what the worst of this country can be, but also the best of, hum of human emotionality and ingenuity behind it. And I think it's just classic Brad Bird. It's that idea of optimism that he has that isn't tampered down by melodrama and I think just works in all the right ways. Beautiful, Brandon. For myself, um, my rating is going to be an eight and a half. I think growing up with this film, there's so much to remember that, you know, it really stuck with me when it came to the visuals, when it came to the emotions, um, when it came to the, uh, the, the almost tragedy of the final act. Um, who knows? Maybe that's why I love dread whenever it appears in movies now. Uh, but no, I think this movie was, is incredibly influential, especially for fans, um, who, uh, you know, are thinking back on what kind of animated features existed that were so widespread uh, when they were growing up. And uh, it nails the characters. It nails like the American lifestyle growing up as a, as a young American boy. Um, and I think <laughs> it really paints that, that person who is so entirely committed to their, um, their government title or government position uh, and even military and, you know, willing to, uh, damage kids damage communities and destroy lives um that really like you can be you would be surprised maybe to see that in a in a children's animated feature today um we didn't talk about this though but uh that character uh mansley <laughs> at the at the realization that the nuking of this city means his demise too oh, I immediately love rips somebody out of a car and tries to he like does a three-point turn as fast as he can and tries to book it out of the city and the giant's hand is just waiting for him to crash into and it's it's such a comedic moment for this for this like um emotionally low point in the movie that i think helps just um continue to breathe life into it uh this movie's amazing and i definitely would rewatch it over and over again with new friends and uh new family members like i hope to have kids one day not to jinx it but i hope to show them movies like this like it is just i'd say like it's fun for the whole family it basically is minus a couple of like really dark things but if your kids are mature like i wouldn't show them like babies but like most mature kids i think can really understand this and gravitate towards as you and i clearly both did at a certain age and if you wanted to check it out, this is actually one of the movies that is uh, streamable. So uh, with, with many of our titles, we hope to um, explore them that are accessible and uh, allow any of our listeners to also experience these movies so they can share thoughts. Uh, the Iron Giant is streaming right now. I'm not sure for how long, but <laughs> at the time of this release, I'm sure it will be remaining uh, streaming option on HBO Max. And that'll do it for episode three of Directorial Debuts. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this little experiment we're doing. And of course, let us know how we're doing. How can you do that? Well, you can leave a review on any of our podcast services. You can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and uh, RSS feed. Check us out on there, leave reviews and comments. And there's ratings now, uh, which I didn't know because I'm still getting used to uploading all of these. But please leave us a rating. Tell us what you thought about these and follow us on our social media pages, uh, Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. You know, reviews and reactions and a lot of cool things over there. Check it out. You'll see what you think. Uh, my co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, 
where can people find you and uh, got anything going on in your life? Uh, continuing to commit my time to some uh, awesome social media content that I want to get out on the feeds for plot devices. And you can follow me on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Uh, that's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music. That's Cablebox underscore music. You've got gigs and live music and hopefully recorded music coming out very soon. Check out my work on ASU Odyssey as well. And once again, just follow us on Block Devices Pod, Twitter, Instagram, all the things. That being said, uh, for episode three of Directorial Debuts, my name is Brandon King. That has been Noah Guzman. And we'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>